0: Hello, Internet. You are now experiencing technical difficulties. This is Greg, and welcome to another episode of Table Chatter. Uh, we have a special guest with us this evening. We have Erica Chaprel of Newsstand Press. Uh,
1: Chapel? <laughs> Chapel. Yeah, sure. It's been a long um, day. Yeah, so no, sorry. it's okay. No, it's okay. <laughs> um, I ever like, wh- however, people pronounce it is right, but I've never heard it pronounced that way before. <laughs> I think I was just
0: looking at my notes in the space between the A and the P, just made my brain go boom. <laughs> I apologize.
1: It's <laughs> okay. No problem.
0: Uh, but we are very happy to have you.
1: Yeah. Uh, so- I'm very, very happy to be here. Excellent.
0: Uh, So we were hoping to talk today about your game Flying Circus and some of the other games you've done with Newsstand. But uh, one of the questions we always like to ask first is, uh, how exactly did you get into tabletop
1: gaming? Okay, so I went to a Catholic school. So we were not allowed to play Dungeons and Dragons. We, like, categorically not allowed. That game was of the devil. Yep. But we had an RPG group. So... Like, most people's RPGs are, like, Dungeons & Dragons. Maybe Pathfinder. Pathfinder didn't exist at the time. This was, like, 2003. My first game ever was a Palladium game called System Failure. (laughs) Played in a portable classroom with the RPG group under the watchful eye of our history teacher. Uh, I was 13 years old. I made my first character. Um, It's my first game ever. Uh, And then I played a bunch of... I played... Uh, werewolf i played uh well no i made a character for werewolf and we never got around to play it we played a bunch of mutants and masterminds we played um like just like a variety of weird little games we played some uh uh of those cheap ass games that used to be a thing the little cardboard games that would be mailed out to people right um and also so you know that was my first game and then the my you know how i got into gaming and i kept playing with this group for a while and um I also got my first game, like was bought my first game on my birthday, when I turned 14 years old. I was given a game called Deluxe Recon, which was a Palladium game about the Vietnam War. Because even then, the things that I were into was very obvious to my friends. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a terrible game, but it was my first game that I owned and ran. I was it was the first thing I ever GM'd. It was kind of important to me, Mm -hmm. Um, and almost immediately I started playing at writing games. I I tried making a cyberpunk game that was. I found my notes like a couple years ago, and it was unplayable. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, you know, I started playing around with that, but then I I I sort of went away from from a lot of of tabletop gaming for a little while, Um, and 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 played around with some other stuff. I got really into computer game modding, um, that kind of thing. Uh, It's where sort of my weird skill set comes from is having like dabbled in web comics and uh game modding and indie game design and t- cg art like just keeping keep trying different things but then when i was in college um for the second time i'm not a good student um <laughs> uh, a friend of mine from the old gaming group contacted me and was like hey uh have you ever considered making a role playing game uh and i was like actually i just did this thing for my concept art class this like um, sort of cyberpunk and cyberpunk noir like steam powered robots looking thing and i was like you know what if i wrote a game about that uh that game never came out but i kept playing with it for a little while i started writing i wrote my first quest which is something that's really important to me quests are forum-based asymmetric single character role-playing games ah. uh or in other words i write a story and everybody votes what the character does oh those yes yes So I ran my first one on that system, and then I ran another one using that system to do a Pacific Rim roleplay, where they were Cherno Alpha punching increasingly ridiculous monsters. Nice. Um, And sort of through that, I started playing around with actually making roleplaying games. Um, I started working on a a Magical Girl game that I poked at. And then in 2014, I just sat down Wasn't sure what to do with my life. I was unemployed. Uh, The only thing I had going for me was that I was going to the gym constantly, which was pretty rad. Um, Unemployed, depressed, sad, whatever. And I decided, you know, I'm trying to make this giant heartbreaker. And that seems like a terrible idea because I'm starting to get an understanding now. I've played at this point like dozens of games. I ran Dark Heresy for years and years. My first real big game was trying to basically rewrite Dark Heresy from scratch to be acceptable uh yeah. you know i've i've played dozens of games i've read at this point like a hundred games because I, I just got in the habit of finding pdfs and reading old games ah. and just like and as well as like rating my local game store which had a like you know used bin and i would go in and just like get like cyberpunk old cyberpunk um expansions and splat books and like <laughs> i would i read everything and get my hands on and finally i went like you know, most role-playing games are bad and most role-playing games are most people's first role-playing game and they just keep making it over and over again. What I need to do is I need to make something small and get it out of the door.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: I wrote a little game called Must Be Tuesday, which was my first ever published game. I wrote it in a month of 14-hour days because again, I didn't have a job and I didn't know what else to do and the only other thing I was doing was going to the gym. Mm-hmm. Um, And I, I made this little game. I illustrated it myself. It's Still fairly solid. I do everything about it differently now, but it's not bad. Um, it does Buffy the Vampire Slayer in 30 pages, oh. um, and it 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 it. I think it's really good at doing that because I, I it kind of I struck upon a whole bunch of of things that I started understanding about how like resources can work and flow through games. How like you can do a lot with a little bit about how like ways of tracking information mattered, like with sliders and stuff like that. And and that's kind of when I went like, wait a minute, this is something I could actually do. And I started dedicating time to making lots of little games until I got good at it and then working on bigger stuff.
0: Nice. Uh, and some of those slightly bigger games are still available on your itch page, like a Blackout or a Double or Nothing?
1: Yep. And on RPG, my first big game, Patrol, which is a remake of Recon, kind of, a spiritual successor, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, is still up on Drive-Thru RPG. It is not on Itch, because I found that Itch and Drive-Thru RPG have very different audiences. They sure do. <laughs> uh, so on Itch tends to go my... Like, I, I, I only put up the stuff on Itch that I think people on Itch would care about. Smart. Where about... Uh, like, Drive-Thru RPG is my primary which is unusual for a lot of indie people is for a drive through rpg to be the primary thing. I get a lot of people telling me like it's a useless website like you know whatever. But because I tend to write things that appeal to a slightly different mindset about games than I think a lot of the itch crowd and the current like indie thing like I'm not saying I'm some sort of bold iconoclast, like quite the opposite. I'm weird in that I like writing old kind of games, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm I'm not OSR, but I'm closer to it than I am to some of the, like, lyric game stuff. Right. Stuff that's a bit
0: more free-form, open-ended.
1: Yeah, I don't want to do that. I want to uh, figure out new cool ways to roll dice to represent uh, machine gun fire. Like, that's <laughs> that's kind of where my brain's at. Uh, I've got a really cool one on Patrol too. Oh, my God. It actually lets you burst fire the dice two or three at a time. Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, uh how I came into your work and a game where you can do a lot of machine gun fire is a flying circus.
1: Yeah. Uh, What is the elevator pitch you would give to somebody for flying circus? So I've done this, I've done this a couple times, like I'll try to elevator pitches to people. And I found that there's like 40 different pitches you can give to different people, depending on what they like. (laughs) Um, but the, like the highest level thing I can come up with is that, um, it is a, God. tabletop flight simulator wearing ptba like a skin suit um with a machine gun in one hand and a rainbow flag in the other <laughs> yeah that tracks <laughs> that's that's about it's about where it's at it's it's a um it is a game about flying airplanes and being young dumb gay people
0: <laughs> it certainly is uh so you've got both a very rich setting in Flying Circus and then a very structured World War I air combat.
1: Uh, which exactly came first in your design for the game? Um, neither. Oh. So when the game started, it was, a, it was an attempt to break out of a funk. I'd been working on a game called Five Across the Heart for a very long time, which is a magical girl role-playing game that I still will one day make. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Magical Girls by way of the Matrix in that the Dark Kingdom has already won and you're the Magical Resistance oh. um, it's the coolest idea that I've ever had and I can never quite do it justice and I have been slogging at it since 2015 and I finally went like okay let me take a pause on this and write something new, something clean sheet mm-hmm. and the the thing that came to me, like the the concept that came to me was this idea of like what, how to do air combat because that's something that Games don't do well. Like Patrol touches on it lightly because it has profiles for aircraft and helicopters, but the rules are basically just uh, you will never fly these. They happen overhead. These only exist to deliver things to the play area. Right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but that kind of was frustrating to me a little bit. That you know, I, I I did that and like did that knowing that it that I couldn't handle it. That there was nothing I could do about it. And every game about aircraft disappointed me. I didn't like Warbirds because I thought it was too abstract and didn't teach you anything about how airplanes work. I didn't like um, uh, any of the Star Wars games that I've ever played because, yeah, it's like D and D style treatment of of aircraft sucks. I've never liked um, like top down miniature fighter games. Mm-hmm. I I played. Uh, I used to play like the little clicks. Um, uh, BattleTech game and another game that existed at the same time was this uh, Crimson Skies one. And I, I thought the models were super cool and I would repaint them, but uh, the combat was terrible. I never liked the X Wing game that uh, Fantasy Flight did. I never liked. I played uh, Games Workshop's Aeronautical Imperialist when it first came out and I fucking hated it. <laughs> like I did, I could not get into any of those because like aircraft and air combat is one of my 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 like historical interests. Especially early air combat. I know nothing about like World War II stuff, but mm-hmm. World War One is my obsession. And like, I don't. I hated how every single game ever did it. I felt that every single one of them did it wrong.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I came. I, I came up with this like idea that maybe what to do is to treat altitude and airspeed like resources. And the very first version of this game had the most important element of it: the dashboard with an altitude. Uh, an altimeter and an airspeed indicator admittedly they only went from one to ten but that was like the first version of this game Ah. Um, but it didn't have a setting yet it was vaguely i decided on apocalypse world because i decided that moves made sense for air combat Mm -hmm. this wasn't me sitting down and saying i will write a ptba hack that does air combat this was me saying i want to write an air combat simulator and ptba's move structure maps best to what i want out of it i never wanted Uh. to make players sit down and say i do an Immelman, right because players don't understand that and there's like you know the vast majority of players aren't pilots you know like i got into flight sims in a big way playing this but like or making this but uh and before that i was like a war thunder player and before that i was a crimson skies player but like you know those aren't I'm going to say it. War Thunder is not a flight simulator. Um, (laughs) War Thunder is an arcade game that's wearing a simulator. I use that metaphor a lot. (laughs) I I, I can understand it. I dig. um, So that was like the first version of it, but it was much more because it was Apocalypse World. uh, My first pass on it was grim, dark, gritty post-Apocalypse. It was still the 1910s post-Apocalypse. It was still Biplanes. But it was way different from anything. Uh, the earliest versions of the game had like an English theme instead of a German one. And I almost gave them in French. But the the only reason they became German was that the very first piece of test art, I did like a little spiky helmet and went like, that's a good aesthetic. I should do that, people. It will make people think of the Red Baron. It will get the point across. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I played with that for a little bit, uh, played with different versions of it. It was D6 driven originally. And then I did a quest because quests are how I trial game mechanics instead of sitting down and playing with six people i play with a forum because it lets me take my time in between actions and rewrite mechanics as i need to if i'm only doing a turn a day Uh, right so it gives me time to to spool it out and oftentimes these days i just write games as quests i go what does the quest need what what question has come up what vote do i need here well that's the next mechanic um so i wrote a star wars game uh, a Nova Squadron. It was just a little Star Wars quest. It ended on a cliffhanger uh, because I didn't need it anymore. But um, it was it was the the Z ninety five Headhunter for the the Rebel Alliance, and I tested a whole bunch of the game mechanics and it worked great. And I said, okay, uh, but I don't know anything about the setting yet. And I've tried different things about this, so let's let's take another run at this. Let's do one. Actually, in Flying Circus, and work out how that comes together. Mm-hmm. So I put it up. I put up the first post. I had the the eight original uh, playbooks that I had been playing around with, which included like stuff that didn't end up in the final game. And they said, "We'll it'll be a Fisher." They sound interesting. A weird cultist. And I did nothing about the Fishers other than that they were going to be a tribute to a game that I love called "The Last for the Awful Sea.
0: Oh, yes, we've played that before on the
1: pod. Yeah, I love that game so much. And and the aesthetic of that game really appealed to me. And I really like the idea of centering one of the people groups around this, like waiting at the edge of the sea for your love to return thing, um, which is where the Fishers started. And you can also see how the game was originally, like, you know, more supposed to be... um england than germany because i was thinking about that um and over time and through largely through this quest which is uh was whispers of the deep which became the novel for flying circus uh the fishers became fishers like i at one point i just i wrote in that the main character has gills as like a, a reveal at the end of an update because i just came up with it <laughs> um, like it was just you know something that felt right at the time, and the fact that they worshipped like horrible Cthulhu gods was something that slowly emerged out of it. And uh, the 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 game got all of its weird details there. The game got its uh, all of its flavor, the shape. It, the I named the world because I needed the name so somebody could say it. <laughs> um, or like the game has a flirting mechanic in it yep. because the character was, you know. High out of her mind after getting shot, sitting in a bar, confronted by a bandit that she had been looking for, and the players were like, "She's a cute wolf girl. We should touch her ears." And I went, <laughs> oh, "Is that what? That your final answer?" Okay, let me write a flirting mechanic. Um. So, and that's my my avatar, is that character on Twitter. Ah, <laughs> um, that's where she comes from. Uh yeah, so uh yeah, there's like several pictures of the the cast from the novel in the book uh, right. because I'm that kind of nerd. Um, but that's kind of how Flying Circus developed was through this quest. Um, and once that got rolling, I went like, wait a minute, I should. This is starting to become something interesting. The mechanics are starting to mean something. Like at a certain point in it, I decided that uh, altitude should actually stand for real figures, like hundreds of meters and kilometers per hour instead of, uh, abstractions. I started like coming up with new ways of handling shooting. I started like the game started getting detailed and interesting. And I started realizing that I had something. And at the same time I had just come out. Like I just figured out, Oh my God, I'm trans.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and I had, um, I, I started writing whispers. I took a break for a summer. And when I came back, I was back on, I was on hormones. Mm-hmm. Um, um, And it was like, uh, I can't, I can't like say enough, like the difference that that made psychologically to me, Mm -hmm. Uh, it gave me the ability to actually like work on stuff, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like, and, and the confidence to pursue things. So I went like, this is something good. I should kickstart this. And I just kind of fucking sent it like I didn't think through entirely what I was doing, which is somewhat noticeable from it. Like the Kickstarter, if I did it now would be run very differently because that Kickstarter came more out of a sense of euphoric like I can do this than it did out of like formalized planning. Yeah, which, you know, like, it definitely went out of scope. And, like, I've got a lot of shit to turn in at, at some point, eventually. Like, I'm still working on all the background stuff, all the stretch goals. But, like, mm-hmm. you know, it was very much, I can do this. I, I know I can do this. And I'm just going to press send. Mm-hmm. Um, And that's what I did. And it made way more money than I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Like, unbelievably more. And I'm a person who feels guilty about stuff like that a lot. So (laughs) I immediately went into a spiral of, oh my God, I can't just make this the little black and white game I wanted to make. The little, like, this has to be real. This has to be worth the money that people are paying me. Um, And I have to really think every part of it through. Mm -hmm. And so I sat down and, like, started just dedicating like all my days, just thinking about how everything in it would work, how like how I could make it worth the, the, the enormous investment that people had made into it. Uh And, um, like it became more ambitious through that. And I think for the better, because it meant that I was paying attention to parts of it that i might have said you know like well you know this was a five thousand dollar game on the way to something bigger and i need to to move on like instead i invested the time and the effort and the knowledge and the and the like you know i i i started learning things and doing research and you know talking to people and stuff to really make it more than i had expected and, like, more than I, I I had originally intended. And I think it came out way better for that. For saying, like, no, I should treat this like an enormous, like, investment of, you know, my, my, my artistic. I should make this like an artistic centerpiece of something I'm making instead of a stepping stone to the bigger projects I want to make in the future. Um, which is how it ended up becoming what it is like i I don't want to make it sound like i had intended to half asset but more uh i realized that i needed to like three or four asset where i was merely going to one asset before Mm. and you you did do an awful lot uh
0: with the game in that like you were the chief writer the chief designer you did uh, a huge chunk of the art yep Uh, Gave but, myself carpal tunnel. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading that on Twitter. Uh, which hopefully you're—that's doing a bit better now. I hope.
1: Yeah, I slip with a brace. Everything's fine. I do drawings now. I know how to pace myself. I'm not. I've learned my lesson. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you did also have a bit of help
0: in the book. Yes, uh, absolutely. You had um, several sensitivity consultants. You've had a German language consultant to check with the language. How, how did working with them help make the book into what you wanted it to be
1: oh my god okay so like the big example that i can give here is the skyborne playbook was something that i had been putting off until i could find a somebody to help me with it like mm-hmm. sensitivity reader i think is i don't remember the the term i used in the credits and if i use sensitivity reader i shouldn't have because it, it really undercuts the what they did mm-hmm. like um so so ashley who helped me put together the skyborne playbook, we worked together on that over like multiple sessions uh, to figure out what the book was going to say because most of the playbooks are about my own personal bullshit, mm-hmm. right? Like my personal bullshit, and I wanted to have one of them that was about something else. And I also had it had to sort of deal with like a lot of the st- the, the motivation behind the, the way the playbooks went was like trying to write a nuanced world that pushed back on the some of the assumptions people might make about the surface level aesthetics of the setting. Right. And so part of what I had to do there was make sure that the representation was good. And I can do queer rep-, rep, I can do you know that, but I can't exactly do any more. And Ashley helped basically make a playbook that was about somebody else's bullshit, right. <laughs> um, namely hers. She did an incredible job like making it this particular story that I could never have, have come up with, like, you know, telling me about what kind of things that she wanted to see come out of it and proposing mechanics. And together we refined it. We went through sheets and sheets and sheets of this, this yellow note paper (laughs) um, to, to sort of figure out what the, the core move of it would be and how to sort of square that and make it work with, the rest of the character in a way that felt like honest and cool and neat and cool. Like, mm-hmm. you know, to make something good. And, and I'm really, really happy about that. Um, And, and how it came out, like actually did an amazing job. Um, And, and then like, so the, my, my friend Fina, who did the, uh, who helped me with the German stuff, like not only helped me with that, but like uh, I started, I did do a lingo for German for a while, and I fell off of it. But I, I, I want to get back on it. Um, and so, like, help me work out how language stuff should work. But beyond that, like, help me with, um, like, s- sat me down at one point and really explained to me how the sort of patchworkness of German culture works, which helped inspire a lot of the tone. Right. Flying Circus and helped inspire the way the people cards work, how the, you know, like there are five or six people cards that represent what we might look at and say is one identity and what in universe, a lot of people would look at and say is one identity because of those kind of conversations. Yep. Um, and I'm still doing it like the, I'm still talking to people and, and incorporating their, 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 their stuff and like getting, um, like working with people to make playbooks outside of my own experience. So in one of the upcoming expansions that I'm working on, the one after chariots has a playbook that is a um, one for the, the, the analog people to Jewish people in the setting. Mm. Um, And my friend Max is helping me put that together Nice. and is doing like, it's so cool. Like I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, because it was something I didn't touch in the original. Because I mean, literally, it says in the book, like I do, like I don't know how to deal with this. You know, I, I did the best I could with the, you know, with with the help of my my consultants. Uh, but if you want a game about that, go play um, Dream Apart. Um, and we took a second run at it after a little bit of feedback and came up with something really cool that I think works with the the. Um, Around the sort of the like constraints, kind of the wrong word, but the like um, the challenge of doing that because of um, well, the, specifically the reason that the Roshonen, the, the 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 Jewish analog in uh, Flying Circus, didn't get a playbook in the original one was I couldn't think of a way to do it that would fit how integrated uh, Jewish Germans were at the start of the. 20th century right like despite you know the rampant anti-semitism and all that stuff like germany was the nation that probably had it like had the best integration of jewish communities other than poland Mm -hmm. um so it was i couldn't like making a playbook and with the playbooks representing backgrounds like places you are from uh, and you know the the occupations and 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 mindsets that come with it didn't make a lot. Of, like I couldn't think of a way to put that together yet. And and um, thankfully we've we've uh, figured that out. So yay! <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I
0: definitely will be interested in seeing that playbook once it comes out.
1: Yeah. So yeah. It's it's. I, the only thing I can say is like seriously hire consultants, pay them super well. Um, it's incredibly important to games, and it makes an enormous difference. It really <laughs> does. It really, truly does.
0: Uh, as you've mentioned quite a bit, uh, Flying Circus is a very queer game. You mentioned it in page thirteen in your content, like in safety notices, like this is an important part of this world. Yeah. Uh, how did you?
1: Uh express that in the game, um well, so it's kind of the this is one of the things that largely emerged from the way that the quest started coming together mm-hmm. um because that wasn't originally a theme um partially because when I started writing the game, I was still working out my gender shit
2: mm-hmm.
1: and like queerness, I was still a little bit feeling um a little distant from it, mm-hmm. um despite like you know like. I was still mucking with it. It didn't feel like mine yet. Right. Um, but as I wrote the quest, that aforementioned scene of the character needing to flirt with somebody and me needing to write a flirting rule was also the moment where the character realizes that she's bisexual. Mm. Uh, and as the quest went on, I started seeing the parallels to like a young queer person leaving a less accepting rural area and going to a city and finding queer community uh and going oh shit well this is what this game is about which is like a very common thing for me it's how i write you know i write a story i write a quest i write a game and midway through i go fuck that's what this is about right oh <laughs> uh, and that was that moment for flying circus was going oh okay i understand now i understand why i'm doing it this way um which is like because i do everything just kind of by throwing myself at it and seeing what comes out of it, like I can't predict what things are going to be about. I can't predict what my themes are going to be. I can't predict what the ending of my stories are going to be. Um, I was uh, 10,000 words into my my weird web novel, Lieutenant Fusilier, when the main character walks into a room wearing clothes that people with her body don't normally wear uh, into a room full of people unlike her. And before going, oh, this is a trans narrative. Like I had no idea until that moment. I wrote that scene, stopped and went, Trance <laughs> so that's that's kind of how I write, and that's how I, I discovered that. And then as the game went on, like I started finding places to explore that in weird ways, like the Fishers like weird relationship with with and the way of of, of incorporating into the game what I can only describe as weird sex shit is done <laughs> to be weird to players and to be queer. Like in, in the 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 rawest sense of some weird sex shit. Um and the like the, a lot of all the characters have like queerness is a reason that they might be leaving home. Um yep. the witches play with gender stuff in in like a really real way. Like all of this this the, the the reasons that I I did that, the reasons that um the gender markers are done the way they are on every playbook and they're different for every playbook, like to next time you go look through the expectation settings, check which playbooks have non-binary as an expectation and how it's expressed and it Mm -hmm. says really strong things about those backgrounds. Like, that was, like, a really important part of this this game which is kind of unsurprising because I was transitioning through writing most of it. Mm -hmm. You know? (laughs) So, Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: it definitely shows throughout a lot of the book. Uh,
1: yeah, and I, also I just slipped gay shit into the art all over the place, be it <laughs> characters kissing who are, you know, like, gay gayly kissing, or just pride flags everywhere. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Hidden pride flags. My favorite is the trans pride rondelle. <laughs> oh, I, I, I caught that, believe me. <laughs> uh,
0: and I think another way, at least from my interpretation, that that can be... Ex- expressed is in the, um, stress mechanics. And, um, that's something that really drew me into the game is the cycle of stress, vice confidant and, um, yeah, gaining experience. Uh, how did
1: that, was that an important part of your eventual, uh, that game was design? one of the earliest parts of it actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and, for the love of God, I did not steal it from Blades of the Dark. I did not even play Blades until well into the development of this game. Please stop saying that, people who say that in reviews. Like, no, that is the the, the only thing that annoys me more than this was stolen from Blades is uh, I wish the author would show more confidence and make her own system. I've made my own system. I picked, I picked. this was the confident choice to pick this system because I thought it was right for it. Have they read the plane rules? <laughs> <laughs> shaking my fist at these these kids. Anyway, um, the stress system was one of the first things in it and reflects kind of what I can, like, you know, I write kind of by the seat of my pants, but then I go back and edit and edit and edit and refine and refine and refine. And one of the things that's super important for me, I've talked about this on my, my Patreon design talks, is like the idea of flow in games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I make flow charts to define how my games work. That is the most important tool that I use. Everything in the game is a like it is all resources into processes into outputs and they all have to you you start at the top of your flow chart and everything has to loop back to the top of the flow chart eventually. Mm. Like that is the most important thing to me about game design. Games that are meant to last more than one session have to be cyclical. So every single element of it has to feed in interesting ways back into the top of itself. Mm-hmm. And stress was the important part of it. The, the core idea of the book, you fight until you run out of altitude, you fly until you run out of fuel, and then you party until you run out of stress, was there from the beginning. <laughs> Admittedly, the partying part was less fun early on, and much more young people destroying their bodies with terrible substances. Uh. Uh, like, was... Because, I mean, it was much more based on the earliest versions of this were much more based on like real memoirs of World War 1 pilots which were I mean they were recognizable in the flying circus pilots but they were the outcomes were rather grimmer because flying circus is a fun coming of age story and what happened to World War 1 pilots was a group of young men destroying their bodies for no reason yeah um which is way more depressing, which is why I changed it. Uh, and also fairly interesting, which is why I'm writing it in Flank circuits Historical instead. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, that loop was always present. And the idea that um, stressful experiences and, like, penalties should turn into, exp- like, experience is something that has been present in my games for a very long time, because... For a very long time, the way I wrote games was I sat down and said, everything you could ever do with a game, ever, everything you could ever want out of a game can be done with a handful of D6s and tokens. Mm -hmm. And like, that's a design constraint I put on myself for a little while. Um, And the reason that I did that was that it made me think in this way about tokens as resources flowing through processes of dice Uh, and then dice as resources flowing through processes intersecting with the tokens. Uh, and that cr- that creates a incentive towards processes that do that, that turn penalties into advantages, that turn th- like that t- take the things that were happening before and turns them into a new resource. Everything always has to go some.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, ev- all parts of the system are under tension and constantly moving towards a new portion of it, and everything that can't move has to be discarded. So. Um, that's that's where that came from. This like just like I can't pinpoint a moment where I decided that that's what this should do, because the idea that the game should do anything other than turn the resource from the last section of the game into the resources for the next section of the game was not how I make games. That was like that's just against what game design is for me. Mm-hmm. The events of the battle make stress happen. The stress is turned into resources that is reinvested into the battle the um like one of the problems that i had with night Witches when i played it i had a couple of problems most of them are me problems of like i want to do more air stuff mm-hmm. but some of them were like mechanical quibbles and one of the mechanical quibbles i had was that the cycle was one-sided you um built team points up before going off on the mission or whatever those those resources were. I always think of them as washers because that's what we used as tokens in the the, the con game I played. Oh. Um, but like um they don't go anywhere from there. They disappear into the mission and you come out of the mission on a blank slate. You know, minus the people mm-hmm. who died and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um and I like I kind of felt that the the there wasn't enough of a of a churn. I guess. And churn is a very important like, it's actually a really good term and I should write that down and use it in, in, <laughs> in, in game design guides. But like that's like a really important part. Everything should always be feeding around and cycling and doing a spinny. Um, and stress turning into XP was a fundamental part of the early spinny process that just kept through the framework of it. The structure of the game, the little circle, that's a People have made fun of me on Twitter for this, but every single one of my games now, ever since um, Patrol, has had a big circular pie chart in it <laughs> that displays the process of the game going around, be it the bomb clock and blackout or the uh, environmental hazard or the the, the um, stress chart from patrol like you just go around in a circle because that's what games are they're big circles oh god i sound like dan harman oh fuck oh fuck oh, no. <laughs> i mean it helps from like a, a gm standpoint like when i was
0: trying to design my one shot for the podcast like having that helps you kind of understand the best way to run the game
1: yeah and 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 gives everyone expectations and means there's always something to do an enormous problem one of the things that make most role-playing games bad, and I'm going to continue saying that because I am that arrogant, is um, one of the things that make them bad is a ton of games don't know what players are supposed to do. Like, the the system mastery guys are always talking about the problem of, like, wow, this game has a goal setting. The fuck am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. And the reason, the reason that that comes out is that people have designed their games to make... Certain ideas they have happen or to embody concepts that they've come up with and have given no thought to how those things flow into one another Mm -hmm. and how those things like matter to players. So, which is the most important part is this like engagement thing. And like one of the brilliant parts about. Powered by the apocalypse is the idea that the only mechanics that matter are where the rubber meets the road, right? Mm-hmm. Like every move is one of the moments that matter. I uh, yeah. use a scheme of um, a game is a tone, a conceit, uh tone, conceit, uh, resolution, and, and like details, right? And the important part is, you know, your game has a conceit that tells you what it's about and a tone that tells you how it's about it. Um, and the tone tells you how things should be resolved in the moments where the conflict, that conflict, that's what I'm talking about. The conflict creates mechanics. Um, and a lot of games don't have a, they have like a tone in mind, like gritty, and they have a conceit, but they don't have conflict and they don't know how to link their tone into their conflict. They can only just kind of throw the concepts at you and rely on the GM to be a game designer and figure it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is my least favorite thing. GMs should never have to make game design decisions. When I see a move that prompts the GM to come up with a choice, I like I scream internally because, like, no, the GM shouldn't be coming up with a choice. They should not be designing the game for you mm-hmm. because they've got enough shit to do. They're trying to manage everybody and keep the story moving, and keep everything consistent. Like, the job of the game design is as a labor-saving device. Game designers make a shovel so that everyone can dig themselves a deeper hole.
0: (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Uh, And that's one of the things I've just really appreciated about my time at Flying Circus is that you've given a lot of options both as the GM and as the player for how to react. And that
1: can make for some really good stories. Yeah, and if ever you are short on knowing what to do next, there's a big old circle that will tell you. Um, What's kind of interesting, so I've got an expansion coming out called Chariots of Steel, which I'm working on right now, which is it adds tanks to Flying Circus, which sounds completely ridiculous if you know anything about Flying Circus. Uh, And the reason I'm doing that is because one of the areas where the GM doesn't have a lot of guidance is ground combat because um, there's not a lot of space in the book. It is dense, um, I took out art that I, re- I made because I needed to fit more bullshit in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the places that slipped was ground combat stuff and ground stuff generally. Right. I went, this is not the part of the game that matters. Part of the game that matters on the ground is village stuff and getting into arguments with rivals and hitting on hot people and stuff like the part where fighting happens on the ground doesn't matter so i basically just have a little section in there like hey if you get involved in ground combat uh good luck (laughs) Um, and a couple of people on the something awful forums were like hey this kind of sucks it came up on the fatal and friends review of of flying circuits and i was like yeah it does it was just a space issue my editor and i sent each other picture of the space uh core from um portal whenever we run out, like we have to express an idea, but we don't have a lot of space to do it in. Like, you know, I wish we could clarify it like this and we'll send the space for it to be like, no, there's no room. (laughs) Um, Especially because like among my cat, my rules of layout is uh, never break a paragraph between two pages, never break a section between two pages. If I can avoid it. Um, Like, thank you. (laughs) Like, I just, I am obsessed with that. I write my games in InDesign which is something that you have to be, like, deeply self-lo- self-loathing self to do. Oh. Like, it is a monstrous process to do to yourself. And it's even worse to do to your editor. And my editor is a saint. Oh, my God. She's wonderful. But, like, don't. Don't. Don't do this. I'm telling you. Don't do this. However, if you do do this, it will have the best results ever. <laughs> but... So, you know, people said, hey, this doesn't really work. And I went, yeah, I should write like a ground. T- I should write a little expansion, t- you know, helping GMs with ground stuff. And somebody was like, and you'll, I bet you'll write a tank creator for it. And as a joke, uh, I wrote a tank creator on, <laughs> in a Google Doc in like 20 minutes. Uh, and then I sat down and went, fuck, it's actually kind of neat. <laughs> fuck. Uh, and so what was going to be a mini expansion that was originally 12 page, six tanks became uh, 40 pages. T- uh, eight tanks became 112 pages, 15 tanks and a car designer that can make anything from motorcycles to giant walking tractors to bulldozers. Ooh. Um, oops. <laughs> uh, design creep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like the reason that my games are good is because uh, I take scope creep as a challenge.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like that's what it comes down to. I just look at it and go like, fuck it. I'll do it. <laughs> and I do it. And my games take forever to come out and then they come out and they're enormous and everyone likes them for some reason. So like, I guess, uh, don't plan anything. Engage in scope creep, make everything in, InDesign directly. Do all your art yourself <laughs> until your hand falls off. Um, what other advice can I give? Uh, release things and patch them later. People love that.
2: <laughs> it might just be
0: my weirdness, but that's actually something I appreciated because, um, the air quotes, I guess you might say launch version because that's when the uh, physical book print-on-demand came to uh, DTRPG is one point three. Yeah. So you you've been updating the book as if it were
1: a video game. I these yeah, way, so. and like that started with Patrol. Patrol was an enormously complicated game, and I was not. I was twenty five years old when I wrote the first version of it, and like not in a position to write the best version of it um and on top of that just like i didn't know how to do stuff like make a cover look okay um i couldn't spell check to save my life like it was it was an entire i wrote a hundred and fifty thousand word game in a year like it wasn't going to be in less than a year it was like nine months from the discord conversation and immediate playtest i had when i realized how i could link a stat and a dice pool together to make a vietnam war game mm-hmm. um like, the way that game came together was the idea of hunting through an enormous dice pool, looking for only sixes, as though you were trying to salvage something of worth out of a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> Which felt tonally appropriate. Uh, surprise, does. there's nothing of worth to be salvaged. It was an a, imperialistic nightmare. Um, Learning experience. but like Exactly. So, like, that... I literally had a conversation with my friends on Discord. I have this amazing playtest server that I really need to actually playtest on more. Um, We used to play like constantly, and you know we all got older. Um, But like, I played a playtest version of it there, and like nine months later, Patrol was out in its original version, and it wasn't very good. It had all sorts of big problems, and people started telling me what the problems were, and I started fixing them. Um, And I started realizing, wait a minute, this is a digital only product. I'm not selling it physically yet. Why shouldn't I treat it like a video?
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Why shouldn't I keep updating it and fixing it? Especially like, and that taking that mindset to Flying Circus was Mm -hmm. in large part because I can't do big playtesting. And the other part is that like the kind of playtesting that reveals the little problems that games have is not one that can be done by the designer unless they have the backing of a large corporation and yep. an enormous number of friends willing to do or, or of fans willing to do free labor, um, because there's two kinds of playtesting, in in my experience, um, and the one that people pay attention to and think are is important balanced playtesting is bullshit because you don't need players to tell you your math is wrong you need to sit down and go through the mechanical procedure of your game yourself and see how the balance is broken especially if you're not terribly concerned with people like cheesing together ridiculous strategies which i'm never concerned with because i it's like in my opinion that's what a gm is there for like you have other people at the table you have gms and other players who's who are going to look at the guy making pun pun, the cobalt and go get the fuck out of our table. (laughs) Jerry, we're not doing this again. Like, um, like you, I think that balancing for that is a fool's errand. It's something that you do to keep people from complaining on forums, which shouldn't be what anyone cares about. The actual experience that matters happens on tables, not forums, unless it's a play by post, in which case I'm really sorry for those guys because play by post is awful. It takes forever. (laughs) Like, (laughs) So the, the the one that matters is player experience, right? Like that's the one that you can do as a designer. Hey, how does this feel? How does this work for you? Do you understand how these concepts are coming together? Does this game flow feel good? Is this nice? That's something that you can assess as a game designer sitting down with people and like going to con- like cons like Metatopia and running stuff there is enormously important. Doing yep. online tests sometimes with my friends, enormously important. The other kind of testing is just finding weird ass edge cases. And there is no way to do that with any kind of game with, of any complexity on your own. Yep, It's just cannot. The games are too complex as systems to do that. So what you do is you put a broken version of the game into the world. That's bad. And you say games released, everyone play it. And then you start taking notes as people complain about the sh- shit that's broken in your game. <laughs> and then you go new version of the game. Everyone have fun. Um, so by doing this, by abusing your fan base and using them as a resource, <laughs> you can, you too can write slightly better games. Uh, and it will cost you nothing, no goodwill whatsoever. Nobody will mind. <laughs> Actually, no, seriously, people don't mind. Um, some people get a little bit annoyed when stuff changes on them in the middle of campaigns. Mm-hmm. But um, what when what comes out of it is a better game and a better process, people are excited. Especially because if your game's fundamentals are good... Like if your game's fundamentals are bad, no amount of feed post release feedback will save it. Mm-hmm. Which is why write your first like my number one advice to new designers is write if your first game it should take you no more than an hour and then put it on drive through RPG. Uh just do it in one go. Uh because everyone's first game is shit, don't spend a year on yours. <laughs> like it's a really important lesson to learn. Um you know, maybe make a couple more one pages after that because everyone's second and third game are usually pretty bad as well. Um <laughs> Like you know get it's you know how some players will roll dice until the ones come out. you have to do that with role playing games mm-hmm. um as a designer and um because it's a skill, and I think a lot of people don't understand that it's a skill they right. they 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 think it's um you know they think they've played one and so they can make one which which you know like these are really different skill sets, yes, and like. It's part of the thing that's frustrating about this industry is the way that um game designer and the 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 art of game designing is simultaneously sometimes treated as like a rock star thing that like you know a couple of big names who wrote games in the 90s can do as some sort of super genius mm-hmm. feat that nobody else can can rival but it's also treated as just like why would you, you know, think that you, why are you so arrogant as to think you can sell your game kind of thing? Like when I first put my first game out in the world, I charged $10 because I put a month of 14 hour days into it. And silly me, I thought maybe that was worth compensation. And I got an enormous oh. torrent of abuse. Um, And it took me a long time to build up the confidence to charge what my work is worth. Like, right. Um, but like game design is hard. And it's, it's, it's difficult to do. And it's a skill that you have to develop over a lot of failure. You have to mess up a lot and realize in retrospect, because you can't realize while well, you're still working on it. You have to sit back and come back to it after a year and go, why did I make that decision? What the fuck passed me? But once you've done that, you'll have learned. And you'll have learned new ways of looking at what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And the advantage of this like post-patch thing is it lets you store up a good game with holes in it. Mm-hmm. Um, if your game's bad, start running your, your next one. If a game's good and people are engaging with it and loving it, they're going to find problems with it. But if people point those problems out to you, it's because they love your game. Mm-hmm. They love it so much that they've run into these problems and they're... T- telling you about them because they want them fixed. And I think that doing this like release post support and then go gold and say, this is the way it's going to be and moving on to your next thing is a really healthy way to engage with people who love your game and to help them out with the parts of it that aren't perfect. While simultaneously giving yourself room to finally say, and now we're done.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And now the new thing. You know, like, which is a really important at some point, like games are never finished. You're just done with them and you gotta gotta be be okay with that. Right. Or you can be like me and write a tank game for it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Lessons, lessons I definitely need to take to heart. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah. So this is just bad advice corner, the whole thing. Um, (laughs) That's, I guess what I'm getting at here. Just don't do anything I've done, but if you do, your games will be perfect. (laughs) i mean we got what we got (laughs) am i am i saying this because i don't want rivals or am i saying this as a true warning you'll never know (laughs) why not both why not (laughs) why not both i mean also i'm i'm coming off super egotistically here but i'm really joking like i don't i I know my games have problems like you know but also i haven't had a podcast interview in forever, and I want to be positive. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing perfectly fine. You're doing perfectly perfect, fine. Perfect.
0: Um, I guess one one thing I did want to make sure I wanted to ask about, because uh, you had also mentioned it with Chariots of Steel and the Tank Builder, is there's also the Plane Builder, and especially the oh online boy. Plane
1: Builder. Which, yep.
0: <laughs> which also has the links in the actual uh, airplane Uh, book and has the links to the website, which even includes the uh, interactive one in 1.3. And uh, I can say that that was an enormous help in being able to Mm -hmm. understand and play the game, but it also was a lot of work. I'm guessing.
1: Okay. So remember how I said, I designed things using quests. Yes. Okay. My favorite movie in the entire world is, uh, studio Ghibli's the wind rises. Mm hmm. I use that as inspiration to write a quest called Aircraft Design Quest. The reason that the plane builder is called O'Hara Airworks is that's the guy's company. Oh,
0: it is, uh, isn't it?
1: Guy, non-binary aircraft designer. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I wrote two hundred and fifty thousand words of alternate history, alternate universe fiction, including inventing a whole bunch of like weird alt world gender dynamic stuff for the purposes of making an aircraft design system. So in addition to everything you see there, there is five novels worth of fiction that created it. Um actually and which has a spin-off that I also worked on which is an additional four novels worth of narrative. But anyway, I I don't do anything in half measure if that hasn't been A theme of this interview yet. (laughs) But yeah, so that system came together out of me saying to everyone, your character is the smartest aircraft designer in the world. They are a prodigy. They are going to make aircraft that revolutionize the world. In other words, here's the version one, like version 0.01 of the aircraft building system, which at the time is just a text document and a very basic, like, um, chart to put everything in, and you have to do all of the math yourself, Mm -hmm. break my game. (laughs) And and this was enormously popular on the website, Sufficient Velocity, I run it on, because there was, at the time, a fad of military procurement and design bureau forum games. Mm -hmm. Like, it was modeled on something called Small Arms Design Request. Uh, which was not a game with no system, but was about making rifles in the late 1900s Uh. or late 1800s. Um, So I started, I I did that and people broke my game over their knee. They built a fighter on 90 horsepower that could do 200 kilometers an hour. (laughs) They did. um, They made the, the, they beat the world speed record by like, 60 kilometers an hour on two 60 horsepower engines that barely worked. They (laughs) built the first airliner in 1911. Like they broke this game and I just kept fixing it. And every time an exception came up, I went, cool. I'll put that exception in every time. Somebody said, what if we did X? I said, cool. I will put in X. They were like, we need to make an observation plane. We'll make it really, really stable because stability is apparently important. Is stability plus four enough? And I went, sure. Enormous positive stagger with the tail. Sounds good. It's basically two tandem aircraft at once. Like, like doing, letting them do that and letting them just shatter this game over their knee over and over made that bizarre system. And it got like a whole bunch of people got obsessed with it. This forum game was enormous for a while. It was like in the top five quests on the site for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And um, people kept coming to me with like, Uh, we found ways to automate parts of it. Or I thought of a really cool way to do, like, uh, rotorcraft. And I started working with people who were reading it who were aircraft engineers. And, like, eventually the site that became the actual, like, the official tool was an unofficial tool that was put together for the the side thread used to, to discuss the builder and its mechanics. And I, like, went to the person who made it and said, Can I just put this in the game, please? Because I don't want to make people do the airspeed equation. Um, Or, okay. So you thought that the aircraft builder was bad. But did you know that there is a builder within the builder? There is an engine builder inside this machine. And the engine builder is magic. Magic. And the reason I say it's magic, I don't mean like it's magic and this is a, like a feat of brilliance. I mean, it is like a dark artifact at the heart of this machine. Right. Because for a little while, I was just having people define engines very like procedurally and it wasn't giving enough variation. Finally, I sat down and said, I will come up with from first principles, a way of designing engines that will inc- that will cover all World War I engines. This is the thing that I, a person who has failed mathematics three times, can do. And then I hit my head during a blood test and got a concussion. A month later, there was an engine builder in the middle of this game. All that has happened since is some of the people who actually knew how to do math cleaned up the equations. It is startlingly accurate to general use cases. You can break it in engines with too few cylinders or too large displacement. But if all you want to do is make a World War One engine, you can put in its compression ratio and engine displacement and modify for its RPM and you will get a shockingly accurate result and nobody knows how it works especially not me (laughs) oh but it's there if you want to play with it it's there if you want to play with it good luck uh it is actually we keep telling people like I know it's there but uh this is a tool for GMs and designers like Because you can break it over your knee very easily and make an engine that's a thousand billion horsepower on two pounds. Like, you can do that. It's not intended to be, like, a player tool. It's a, like... uh, Well, the very specific use case it's designed for is, I want to give my plane this historical engine, and I have looked up its statistics on Wikipedia. And that's what it does. It it gives the game statistics for that engine. Bless Most of the time. (laughs) So, Yeah that's uh it is a spooky bunch of math i don't understand it all anymore uh if it weren't for the the people who help maintain it uh, i don't think i could understand it but i remember the time that i first used it um for a little while we were working with uh a good friend of mine callum who's credited in the book as well uh, made a a a um excel sheet that could do it mm-hmm. uh but it was really janky which was still a huge step up my 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 like Assessment method was to make a stop with camel. It used to take Fair me enough. 45 minutes to an hour when I did every part of it by hand to make a stop with camel, like the most basic biplane you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Doing it in the Excel sheet, I could do it in 15 minutes. I remember doing it in 45 seconds in the O'Hara Airworks site. And that's when I knew, like, oh, this has to be like an actual part of the game. Right.
0: That clear delineation of being able to see the improvement in timing yeah and it really helped uh being able to just pick even just picking planes even if you don't have the yeah most deep knowledge of world war one aircraft like i do but um that and the uh plane
1: catalog just really yeah and the the catalog also has a teaching tool in it for the 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 modify the for the the building like the reason that there are common variations for every single plane but no links attached to those common variations is to make people do it themselves so they learn how the builder works mm-hmm.
0: but you tell them what to do
1: you know yeah exactly so Cobra, you, it's just like wire root now you got it program yeah now. yeah and then you go oh okay yeah and then you know how that part of the game works a little bit better and by game i mean the second game that is located beneath the other game and powers it like some sort of bizarre demonic heart uh, so there
0: is a lot to do in flying circus and it is a game i've very much enjoyed off pod i hopefully we can get it on pod soon
1: and uh, i every time somebody does a let's play i rush to uh so to to, to to listen i'm it's so cool hearing people play my game it sure like, is <laughs> it, it always feels like incredibly validating to just be like oh my god like that somebody is actually experiencing this thing I made, and it's not just this like ephemeral like thing I poured three years into, right? <laughs> and then it disappeared into the void, right? <laughs> uh, any final thoughts or anything on the future uh, beyond chariots? Yes. Yeah, so, beyond chariots, I've got an expansion called uh, uh, "Fall of the Valkyries," which is a expansion centering centering around new playbooks. So, uh, there's going to be a group of new regular playbooks, as well as uh, three playbook modifiers, which can apply to any other playbook, one of which makes you She-Ra with wings. Um, So that will be happening. It's kind of a more mythologically focused Mm -hmm. one. If Chariots is all like, bang, bang, war stuff, then this one's very much like, there's going to be big lore sections talking about how all the settings mythologies work, like that kind of thing. Um, And then the other stuff that's happening is that the The other games in the line, so to speak, like I put waste so much time into the background mechanics of this game that it would be a waste to not do other kinds of games with them, especially because there's other places like, you know, there's other kinds of flight that people want to do that other than World War One aircraft. And I don't want them to have to use a different system because then they won't be giving me money. I mean, they'll have a (laughs) suboptimal experience. I mean, I would prefer to provide an experience for them. I mean, I just want to make more games. So I'm working on uh, Flying Circus Historical, which is a actually historically focused game about being on the actual Western Front. With which will have um, zine sized expansions that will just cover like specific missions for other conflicts and stuff like that. Um, and it's it's going to be really weird. Like uh, it's an OSR game wearing Flying Circus as a skin suit, while Flying Circus wears PTBA as a skin suit. So it's like some sort of John Carpenter's The Thing of game. Um, you can die in character creation like it's Traveler. You literally roll for your stats like it's d First Edition. Uh, like 3D6 down the line, the whole thing. I'm four seconds away from having a joke about you can play a woman pilot if you want, but she's going to have minus four strength. Strength will not be a stat. Um, Like, like it is deliberately designed to be a homage to the bad way that games used to work with character creation and, you know, OSR garbage. Um, While simultaneously using that to say something about both Flying Circus itself and about history, which is to say that Flying Circus really is a sanitized cartoon version of something that was much more horrific Mm -hmm. uh and then there's storm divers which is what if it was top uh independence day instead it'll be super cool uh you can fly big planes and shoot down aliens and it'll be a great time for everyone uh (laughs) both ends of the spectrum (laughs) so yeah that's that's kind of you know i contain multitudes and all of them have plants. all of them have (laughs) plants. well uh where can people find you erica uh you can find me on twitter um which is a place that I don't recommend you go. I mean, Uh, yeah. uh, And if you are smart enough to avoid Twitter, you can find me on uh, the website sufficientvelocity.com under Open Sketch, where I uh, write the quests that test my game. I'm currently testing uh, Flying Circus Historical with a quest called Flyboy, which is I sat down and made an opening post with he, him pronouns for the first time ever I was like, I'm going to write a male character who is going to sign up for actual real World War I with no fantasy bullshit whatsoever. And then my good friend Dragon Cobalt came in and started banging the table going, woman, woman in disguise, woman in disguise, woman in disguise. And anyway, that's where we're at now. Thanks, Dragon. I love you. Um, and you can also find the weird fiction that I work on because in my somehow the spare time that I have, I write fiction about gay robots. So, yeah, that's about it.
0: <laughs> Which definitely we'll need to read some time. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we greatly appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, hopefully we'll be hearing more from you soon. And
1: more from... Yeah! Night, so. I mean, given how much I talked throughout this entire thing, it would be surprising if you didn't hear more from me. Like, good God, <laughs> I just rambled this whole freaking time. Can you tell that I'm, like, the isolation of the pandemic getting to me? <laughs> Same hat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Same hat. <laughs> oh my god. But we, Thank I definitely so appreciated much. talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. And we hope you enjoyed, listeners. Good night, internet.
1: Bye.